We're certainly very grateful for the presence of each and every one that's come to be with us this morning as we've endeavored to come here at this place one more time and have a wonderful privilege, and that is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Appreciate very much, especially our visitors. We have a number of visitors among us from the community, and we want you to feel as you are, and that is as our honored guest today. Certainly hope, pray, and trust that what we have to consider in this morning's lesson will be helpful to you in some way as we endeavor to try to do those things that are right according to God's Word. I want to invite your attention now to the book of John, the ninth chapter. And we want to begin reading there in verse number 24. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore, would ye hear it again? Would ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Barring any mistakes on my part, reads that passage of scripture as found in the book of John the ninth chapter. Very interesting verses of scripture as we find and we want to discuss as the basis for our sermon this morning, as Jesus would heal a man that was born blind, and he did so on the Sabbath day. I want to ask you a question, though, because this is something that happened in this man's life. I want you to know, and I want us all to recognize as we study this little story as found in these few verses of Scripture, that this man's life was changed completely by Jesus. So I ask you one question, and this will be the topic that we'll consider, and that is simply, what does religion mean to you? I think that's a very timely question. I think it's one that if we went out into the world and asked folks on the street corners, if we would ask all those Christian professing folks in the world, if we would go out and talk to people that are in the world and ask them the question, what does religion mean to you? I would imagine we'd have all manner of answers. 
But what does the Bible teach on the subject? It is the profession or practice of religious beliefs. It is also the service or practice that stems from conviction in something. Now, religion, as we examine that topic today, we must understand that religion may be right or it may be wrong. It can be sincere and it can be insincere. It can be true or it can be false. It can be full and rewarding or it can be vain. But you know, as we discuss the, this topic and we discuss the things that Jesus had done with this blind man, we also discuss that oftentimes Jesus had to speak against the religious re elite of the day. You remember that there were many that would try to discredit the things that Jesus had done especially those living under the old law of Moses, those Jews, you remember, those Pharisees, those scribes, those individuals that were considered, like I mentioned just a moment ago, the very religious elite of the day. But what did Jesus say, you remember, in the 15th chapter of the book of Matthew and beginning in verse number 7? We have to understand Jesus was speaking to religious people. And he said this, he said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You also remember in the book of James, the first chapter, and beginning there in verse number 26, which says, if any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And so the real test of a man's religion today is ask yourself the question, what difference does it make? You know, I think if folks would answer the question of what religion means to them by way of the context of asking the question to themselves, what difference has it made in my life? I would say that that person could have a pretty good understanding if the religion that they are a part of is adequate or not. I'll just say this, that if a person decides that they're going to follow Jesus, if a person makes the determination in their life that they're going to obey what the Lord has instructed in His Word and be a Christian and be a disciple, which is simply a follower of Jesus, if a person will do that, there are great blessings that that person has that is far different from all of the things that are offered in the world. I want to notice some examples with you now, though, of some people that were truly changed by their religion. You remember just a moment ago, we read in the ninth chapter of the book of John that this was a man that was born blind. And as he was born blind, we find that on a particular occasion, Jesus Christ is going to heal this man. But Jesus chose to do so on the Sabbath day. Now, we know that Jesus was living as a Jew under the law of Moses at that time, and we understand 
that those that lived under the law of Moses were commanded to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. We also understand that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that there would be no servile work, that there'd be nothing that they would do that would exceed what was given them to do or permitted for them to do on that day of rest. But Jesus chose this occasion to heal a man that was born blind. You know, Jesus did this on a number of occasions, you remember, and the reason for that is Jesus would teach a lesson for all of those Pharisees by pointing out their very hypocrisy because of their heart. You remember on one occasion that there was one of these chief Pharisees invited Jesus over to have a meal on the Sabbath day. Now we understand by way of the context of that story that these people there that day, those Pharisees, those Jews on the Sabbath day were not extending an invitation to Jesus because they liked him or they respected him greatly. In fact, we find that by the time Jesus gets to that house to have that meal on the Sabbath day, there was a visitor present. There was a man that was afflicted with the dropsy. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to find out what Jesus would do. If Jesus says absolutely nothing on that occasion and goes in and heals this man, they could say he's a sinner because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. If Jesus goes to the very same location and says nothing and does nothing for this man, they can discredit him for whom he was, saying that he was not a loving or a caring person at all if he had the ability to truly heal this man. On many occasions, there were those Jews that were trying to discredit Jesus Christ. But on this occasion, he heals this man. And these individuals say this about Jesus. They said he is a sinner because he had done this on the Sabbath day. And you remember that they got this fella aside, however old he was. All we know is because of what his parents said, he was old enough to stand on his own two feet and he was old enough to speak exactly and give the testimony of what happened where Jesus healed him. And so here come the Jews. Here come all the religious elite and they stand before this man that was born blind and they said, what did Jesus do to you? In fact, they said this, he's a sinner. I think it's very interesting, though, how this man responds to the accusation that Jesus was a sinner. He says this, whether he's a sinner or whether he is not, I did not know this man prior to this occurrence, but whether he's a sinner or whether he is not, I don't know. But all I know is I was born blind and now I see. And then they said, well, tell us again. Tell us again just exactly what Jesus did. How did he heal you? And he said, I've already told you. But then he asks him this question. If I tell you again, will you be his disciple too? Oh, this infuriated those Jews that day. They were infuriated and they said, no, in fact, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to follow Jesus, that's up to you. That's your business. We follow after Moses. We are the disciples of Moses. And then he says this. He, they said to this man that was born blind that no longer is, they said, we follow Moses because 
we know that God truly spoke to him. This other man called Jesus, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know that God has ever spoke to him. But notice what this man says in response. He says, have you ever known a man that was born blind and had anyone in the entire world have a record or an account where any individual was able to do what Jesus did to me? A man that was born blind and could now see. You know, in response to those things that this man said, I would imagine as they were searching for answers and as they were getting madder by the moment, they said, you know, you are a man that was born a sinner. Very interesting, that phraseology, because that phrase right there is not found in God's Word. He said, you were a man that was born a sinner, and now you are sitting in judgment over us. Very interesting, because as we examine God's Word, we find that a person is not born a sinner. They said this man was born a sinner because he was blind. But I'll just say this, as we know today, that people are born into this world, they are born innocent, they are born pure. As we noticed last weekend in our gospel meeting, we discussed this very briefly one time, in Matthew chapter 18, the way that Jesus looks at or views little children. And, G and Jesus would say, you remember, he said, Permit little children to come to me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. If we look around our audience this morning, we see these little kids. We see these little children. I want you to know something. These little children are precious in the eyes of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, for one to be saved, he must become as the innocent child. He is born again by water and the Spirit. When he rises from the watery grave of baptism, he is a new creature, and therefore, he is a Christian. He is a babe in Christ. Jesus said, little children have no sin. Well, this man was told that he was a sinner, and they cast him out, and Jesus went and found this man, and he says, as he found him, he says, do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I should believe? And Jesus said, It is the one that made you see and the one that you now talk to. And the man answered and said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The entire point that I want to make about that story is, this man was never the same ever again. His entire life was different. His sense of values had now changed. This was a man that was going to follow diligently and search after and follow Jesus the Christ, the one who healed him. I want to notice a couple examples also as found in some of the conversion stories in the, in the New Testament where individuals were actually religious, but there was something wrong or inadequate with their religion. And so they came to the crossroads of understanding that a change needed to be made, and so they did. Let me just say this, just being religious is not enough. Religion must be adequate. It must be able to change us. It must be able to alter us. 
It gives us a new direction and sense of direction as we live our life. Everything is changed. I won't go into all of the details of these conversion stories, but I'll mention them rather briefly. As we know, a very familiar one is found in Acts the 8th chapter. You remember this, and I say, I use this as an example because there was a man that was traveling a very, very long and far distance from Jerusalem from worshiping under the old law. Also understand this, this Ethiopian eunuch was riding in the chariot and before him was God's word. So he was reading from God's word and we find later he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. This was a man that was diligently searching after something that was better, something that was meaningful, something that was different. He was searching after exactly what it would be that God would have him to do, but the only thing he knew was that which was under the old law. He's traveling in this chariot, reading from the prophet Isaiah, and what he's reading is a very simple, basic passage of Scripture that speaks of the prophecy, the prophetic account of Jesus and how he would suffer for the world. He didn't know what he was reading, and we find that there was a preacher that joined him there that day, there was an evangelist, and his name was Philip. And Philip joins him there. He hears this man reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he asks him the question, Do you understand what you're reading? You remember that he said, in response to that, he says, How can I, unless some man should guide me? And the Bible says that he asks a question. He said, Of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man. The Bible says that Philip began at that same scripture, and he preached unto him Jesus, and then he preached unto him all the things that a person needs to know in order to obey the Lord and have their sins washed away. As they came to a body of water, he said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Saying all that, he was a religious man. He just got through worshiping in Jerusalem. He went to great pains to do so. He traveled a very long distance. He was diligently seeking after what was found in God's Word, though he did not understand he was reading it diligently. He was reading it aloud for the world to hear. This was a man that was not concerned if somebody looked at him and realized he was a religious man. Oh, he was not ashamed. But the religion that he practiced was inadequate. And Philip preaches unto him Jesus. He takes him into the body of water that was there that they passed by, and they took him down in there and baptized him for the remission of his sins. And then he went on his way rejoicing. His life was changed. We can look at all of those that were converted on the Acts, the second chapter, on the day of Pentecost when the church was established. I'll just say this, though. These were religious men. How do I know that? In the beginning part of Acts chapter 2, it says that there were Jews, devout men. Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven were present there that day. They were coming together on a religious holiday, if you will, the day of Pentecost. 
They were observing a religious day. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. But you know, on that day, they found that the religion that they were practicing at one time was adequate, but now it no longer is. And for the very first time, they were able to hear a sermon about repentance and remission of sins. They were going to hear something that they could finally, for the very first time in their life, have all of their sins washed away. And that gospel sermon was preached there on that day so long ago, the very first one, and it convicted their hearts. It convicted them, and it convinced them that they needed to make a change. They recognized their religion was inadequate. And they said, in verse number 36, you remember as this sermon was being preached, it said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. How must it have been on that day to hear such words like that? You want to talk about direct preaching and being very direct? How about a sermon that was such that those Jews that rejected Jesus had to stand there and hear this sermon and hear that the one that you rejected, the one that you turned your back on, the one that you wanted crucified, he was the Messiah and God made him Lord and Christ. In verse number 37 of Acts chapter 2, it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They needed an answer for their soul's inquiry, for they now knew their religion of the past was not adequate. Here's the answer. Then Peter said unto them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We know that the Bible says that on that day, 3,000 were baptized. 3,000 prior to this time, devout Jews, were baptized into Jesus Christ for their remission of sins. And notice verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. They praised God and they rejoiced that now they are a part of something that is meaningful and adequate. Oh, many examples we can look at. We can look at the life of the Apostle Paul and find out he, how he was changed in his life. He was changed to the point that he was willing to die for his faith. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 13, Paul said, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. A man who gave up everything to follow Jesus. Let me ask you two questions now. Number one, what does religion mean to you? And number two, has it made a difference in your life? Being in a, a religion needs to be able to be something that changes us. Number one, it ought to mean purity of life. The Christian's life must be pure. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. But purity of life begins with purity of heart. I know we spend a lot of time talking about the heart. Jesus did that very thing. If a man's heart is not right, there's nothing that's going to be right. If a man's heart is right, if a man's heart is what it ought to be, then God's word is the catalyst. God's word is the seed. And God's word is able to change us, direct us, and guide us all the days of our life. It is God's word that has that power for us today. But it begins with the heart. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 8? He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, the question is then, how are our hearts purified? What did Jesus mean? Did Jesus mean as long as somebody means well in their life? Did, somebody, did Jesus mean that as long as somebody has a good heart and is meaning well and has all the greatest intentions in the world that they're going to have a pure heart according to God's word? What did Jesus mean? Jesus meant that if a person has a pure heart, he is now a candidate for following and obeying what's found in God's word. Notice, how are hearts purified? In the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, Peter, in defending Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians, said that God hath put no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles because they have their hearts purified by faith. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 that the Christian has a purified soul when he obeys the truth. You know, that was the same as the Ethiopian eunuch that we talked about. This was a man that had a good heart. It was purified by his faith in obedience to the gospel. Those in Acts chapter 2, their hearts were good, their hearts were honest, their hearts were right. And at least for those 3,000 that were saved, it was those that were purified by their faith that day. Those in Acts the 10th chapter, when the Gentiles were converted for the very first time, when they were saved in the household of Cornelius, it was because they had a good heart that was purified after obedience. Oh, many cases we could look at. The Apostle Paul's life, he was a man that lived in all good conscience, and yet he persecuted the church and wasted it from his very lips that he said of his own testimony of his life. And yet he was in all good conscience, meaning he meant well. He thought he was doing that which was right. His heart was not pure until he obeyed the gospel. His heart must have been that which was right before he was a candidate. In the parable of the sower, we find that all is based on the heart. We also understand that it is the responsibility of those of God's people to take the word of God and continue to soften the heart of the sinner. I'll just say this. I believe this with all my heart. I believe this is exactly what Jesus meant. That if a person is searching after the truth, they will find it. If a person is looking for the truth, 
and they have a pure heart, they have a good and honest heart, they will find the truth. Jesus promised that will happen. I understand also that it is the, the responsibility of God's people to take the gospel to the lost because there are people out there that are diligently seeking after and looking for the truth. If a person wants the truth, they will find it. But it is up to Christians, it is up to God's people to take the gospel to the lost in order that they might be saved. Secondly, religion ought to give us a sense of direction. You know, if we look at our life, I would imagine we would say that as we make plans from day to day, we make plans from what we want to do in a year from now. We make plans of what we want to do even way long term past that. Sometimes we sit down as we're young people and we're getting out of high school. What do we do? Sometimes we meet with a guidance counselor and we sit there in their office and they ask us questions about what our interests are and where we want to go someday. Why is that? Because the only way that we're going to achieve our goals in life is to plot out a course of action that we might plan for and follow to get there. But if I were to ask folks today, what are your plans? Some might say, well, I want to have good health. I want to have a nice home. I want to have children. I want to have healthy children. I want to have a good job. I want to have a great career. I want financial security for my family. Let me just say this so nobody misunderstands. These are all wonderful things. These are all good things. There's certainly not anything wrong with anything that I've just mentioned. My point, though, is this. When we sit down and when we examine what we want to make in life, sometimes we sit down from a financial aspect and we plot out the course of what we want to make in life and we fail to ask ourselves the question, what do we want to make of our life? What difference do we want to make? Do we want to be a Christian? Do we want to be a good example to those that are in the world, as Jesus said that we should be? Do we aspire to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world? This is the most important question now. As we examine our life, let me ask you this. Do you really, with all your heart, want to go to heaven? There is no other question that means anything if the answer to that question is wrong. You know, I know that it is sad, but there is a place called hell one day. We know that. But we need to aspire to work toward getting to heaven, and that's where you want to be. And so in all of the plans that you make for your family, for your children, for yourself, in all of the priorities that you set in your life, ask yourself the question, do I want to go to heaven? And then ask, am I headed in the wrong direction? Yes, indeed, it is possible to head in the wrong direction. In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, the Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The very best things in life come by following Jesus Christ with conviction and with purpose, changing us in our life, changing who we are. Ask yourself the question when we try to decide all that we want to do, what difference do I aspire to make in my life? You know, I'll tell you this, there will come a day there will come a day when people will not remember the money you made. There will come a day when people will forget all of the things that you did from day to day in terms of going to your job, going to work, all of your aspirations along those lines. There will come a day when folks will not remember that. But they will always remember what difference that you made in your life. If you're a Christian, that's the difference that is greater than any other difference that you can make in your life. Thirdly, religion ought to make us take away fear and defeat and give a spirit of victory. I'll just say this, that it is a common thing and it is an emotion of the flesh. It is a God-given emotion and that is fear. We talked about a couple weeks ago about courage, how Christians need to stand fast and have courage and so on. That's all true. But courage doesn't happen unless there's fear. If I'm not afraid to do anything and I go down and do those things, it took nothing from me to do so. It didn't take any courage because I wasn't afraid. But what about standing fast and standing firm and standing in my faith? in the midst of opposition when I'm afraid. Fear is normal. Fear is found in God's word from God's people. But I'm gonna tell you this right now though, you need not to fear this very important fact. That contrary to all of the old folks down in days gone by as found in the Old Testament, of all of the customs where they believed and they feared that the God that they served the God that they inadequately served would sleep every once in a while. Remember that? Remember when Isaiah? Remember when Isaiah was standing before those prophets of Baal? And they couldn't make the rain, they could not make that fire rain down from their God, their inadequate God, on the altar. They worked themselves up into a frenzy. And you remember what Isaiah said? Elijah said. Elijah says, talk louder. Maybe he's asleep. Elijah says, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's talking to somebody. Remember that? Oh no, the God that we serve does not sleep. The God that we serve is our refuge. The God that we serve as a Christian is always there for us. You know, this sounds like a paradox, I know, but to become victorious, we do so by surrendering. We find in God's word that we win by giving up. 
We find also that we live by dying. And finally, we lose our life that we might find it. Living the Christian life involves giving up personal prejudice, selfish motives, and so on. And it involves surrendering to the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our body. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23, the Bible says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. You remember also in the book of Proverbs, the third chapter and the fifth verse, which says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. Jesus would say on the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew the sixth chapter and the 33rd verse, he would say, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me tell you what the greatest victory in all the world will be. I know that's kind of what we want. We want to be victorious in sports, whether it's in business, whether it's in all things that we are able to compete in in this life. The object is and the idea is we want to be victorious. I'm going to tell you, there's a victory one day that's greater than all the victories in this world combined. And that is a victory over death. There's going to come a day when you will no longer stand at the grave, at a newly made grave of a loved one. There's going to come a day when there'll be no tears. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no crying. The Bible says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. One day, that is a wonderful blessing. But we must live the Christian life here in order that we might have those conditional blessings that are found that God gives us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 55, hear the words of the Apostle Paul who said this, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that promise, the Apostle Paul said in verse 58 now, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'll tell you something. Sometimes we're not protected by the things in this world. You know, sometimes mean folks do mean things to good people. People can come and take what is rightfully yours to have. They can come in at midnight into your home and break in and Steal the things that you've worked hard for in your life. You can have folks that will lie about you and tell stories about you that aren't true behind your back. We can have all of those ramifications that come from that, losing your job, losing all manner of things. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a Christian and you seek after that which is right, remember remember what the book of Hebrews says, that there's a rest waiting for whom? Two conditions. Number one, the people of God that do what? That labor to enter into that rest. If you will do that, 
There is something coming for you that is the greatest blessing of all that no man in this life could ever take away. No one could ever destroy that. And that's our final point. Religion needs to mean refuge and security. To be in Christ is to be in that place. You know, in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17, the Bible says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's how a person is going to come to know exactly what God wants him to know. God does not have a specific will for you where he's going to whisper into your ear what he wants you to do, and then over here he's going to do the same thing for me because he has a different will or a different work for me. Oh no, God wants the same from me that he wants from you, and that's found in God's word, and that is to come to Jesus Christ, to be in Jesus Christ, and to serve him all the days of our life. Some of us have different abilities, different strengths, different talents, and so on. The point is this. It matters not what your strength is. God wants you to use that strength and use that talent for his cause. How do we know what we could do in order that we might be saved in Christ and have the refuge and security that I just mentioned? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how it begins. When one hears the word of God, it causes him to do something or to feel something with relationship to what he has heard. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto or up to salvation. Jesus said in Luke 13 and 3, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. These are steps that lead up to Christ. That's what unto means. But there's only security in Christ. There's no security outside of the body of Christ. Jesus said so long ago in that great invitation, he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Galatians 3.27 now tells us just exactly how we get into Christ. He says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's how you get in there. That's how you get into Christ, where there is security, where there is refuge in the storms of life. To be in Christ means to be in that place. You know, in Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2, I don't know why it is, but a lot of folks quote the first part, but fail to quote the second part of that verse. Paul said there, there's, now, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. Notice the condition that's listed right after that. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Yes, indeed, there are conditions. There are conditions that one must surrender to Jesus. One must surrender to the gospel. One must obey the gospel. 
one must come to Jesus in the form or fashion that the Bible pictures that he must do so. That is, when one follows these steps and is baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, let me just say this. If Christianity does not change us, then something is wrong. If Christian professing religions don't change and make a difference in our life, something is wrong. If our religion hasn't pricked our conscience, our heart, our convictions, and changed us, then something is wrong. So I simply ask you, what does religion mean to you? You know, there's people today that are very sadly living in a godless society. You know, I thought this was rather interesting. There was a poem written in 1936. And what it was doing is it was predicting a sign of the times and it was predicting what it was going to be like in the future. And notice and see how close this fellow was. He said, first, dentistry was painless. Then bicycles were chainless. Carriages were horseless and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless. The telephone was wireless. Soon oranges were seedless. The putting green was weedless. The college boy was hatless and the proper diet fatless. Now motor ro roads are dustless. The latest steel is rustless. Our tennis courts are sodless. And very sadly, our new religions are godless. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.